New York has always been a place where people come to realize their professional dreams from around the country and around the world. Sometimes it takes years to realize those dreams, and sometimes it happens quickly. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started, a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. I'm Bud Mishkin. It didn't take Joshua Henry long. He came to New York from the University of Miami in 2006 with energy and talent and drive. And less than a year later, he was in the original cast of Lin-Manuel Miranda's first Tony Award-winning show, In the Heights. And he has worked steadily ever since. Three Tony Award nominations, playing Aaron Burr and Hamilton in the Chicago and National Touring Productions, starring in the Broadway revival of Sondheim's Into the Woods, which just won a Grammy Award for Best Musical Theater Album, also starring in ABC's live musical production of Beauty and the Beast. His backstory is just as compelling as the son of Jamaican immigrants who had the good fortune of having a teacher and mentor who would open the door to the rest of his professional life. No need for me to put on my day job hat as an unbiased journalist here. This is a really thoughtful and talented artist. Get ready to fall in love with Joshua Henry. Joshua, before we get to your path to where you are now, two quick things. I'd like to discuss what I consider to be the funniest bit ever on YouTube. And that's, you know, maybe I'll put a little pressure on you here. Your bit about three keys to fake singing soul music. (laughs) This, I'm not trying to, you know, whatever, but this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, bud. I appreciate that. I'm, you know, I'm trying to just—I'm not just trying to sing pretty for folks. I'm trying to give them something <laughs> they can take away with, and they can implement into their lives. You know, tools. You're giving people tools uh, here. Absolutely. It's uh, for anyone who has not seen it, watch it. And I mean, without trying to get too analytical about it, you know, they always say the death of comedy is trying to figure—you know—explain why a joke is funny. I mean, the idea behind this—how did it come to you? I mean. I love James Brown. You know, I grew up listening to soul music, whether it was Percy Sledge, Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye. And uh, I I was just listening to Get Up Off of That Thing. And it's such a, if you've heard that song, you can't stay still. And you have the same face <laughs> on while you're listening to it. And I thought, well, what is really going on here? And it's pretty consistent throughout soul music. There's some kind of, there's a couple things. It's either a, a soul scream or a, you know, there's how they control the band or there's how they count in. And those three things I just let, lashed onto. And if you check it out on, on YouTube or if you check it out in Philly with the Philly Pops, February 18th, when I do that, that actual live demonstration, you'll see it's fun. And you actually learn how to, you know, some of these tools that, that, that help you sing soul music. So, you know, I'm glad folks are enjoying it. I'm glad it makes you laugh. But it was just. It was so much fun to put together. Oh, it's beyond just funny. It's really clever. And musically, it's spectacular. So thank you. thank you for that. It's brought me great joy. Second of all, another thing that's brought me great joy are the stairway covers slash mashups. And as a guitar player, you're playing some cool chords there. And I'm, I'm looking closely at the videos like, what's he doing there? Um, and these are beautiful songs that you we don't ordinarily think of as, shall we say, guitar songs. How did this come about? Yeah, I mean, I, I that's something I started doing back in my Hamilton days. I just 
I, I, I always think about what's popular in, in music and how can I make, how can I meld that together with the show that I'm doing? Because I love my art so much. Um, you know, I love theater so much, but I love music, which is my first love. So, you know, a song like no, uh, um, you know, uh, what's this? There's a couple songs. Well, I'll tell you one, one favorite in our household is children will listen. Oh yes. Which I matched up with, um, Philippa uh, Sue. Yes. Oh my goodness. With go easy on me, baby. It right, go right, easy. Oh, yeah. That was go easy. Um, and children will listen thematically. They make sense. You know, it's about children listening and Adele's song go easy on me. says that like, I was still a child. I didn't get a chance to see the world around me. So, the children and the child themes, it just worked. And that's the fun of it for me. And I always think, how can I get those themes together and musically together and in one minute? That That's the, you know, you need constraints to really construct these things in a good way. So I'm glad that folks really latched onto it. Some of them went really viral on, t- on um, TikTok and, and Instagram. And I do them with every show that I get into. So I, I always look forward. I'm glad people are touched by them. It absolutely works. It's really a beautiful thing to watch. So let's go back into back a few years. Uh, can you tell me about the importance of the band Peanut Butter and Jam Session? <laughs> sure. That was a band that uh, me and my brother, David, um, who's older, incredible- older or younger? He's older by uh, like 18 months, I believe. And he is uh, an incredible bass player. And I played guitar and did some vocals for this band in South Florida. And that's where we grew up close to Miami. And we, you know, if it wasn't for my brother, you know, he, he, he really honed, he can't, that's where I found the fire and the passion of music. Um, we would just listen to the radio from, we were seven years old, jazz or hip hop or R and B. And, and yeah, that, that band came about because of our love of music. And I'll never forget it. It's a time when I really, found my chops on the guitar and, and vocally. How old were you? We were, uh, what, 17 and 18. Oh, so yeah. you're already up there a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so I'm always intrigued when talking to musicians and also that I've talked to musicians about trying to name a band. Peanut Butter and Jam Session is actually a really good name, by the way. Come on. Isn't so it? I'm curious about the names that didn't quite make the cut. I don't know if I can remember any. Um, I think, you know, Jam Session Band, which is yeah. like you know, um, Jam Band, but I'm sure that's been done. Um, you, you got Peanut Butter and Jam Session. I mean, come on. Who doesn't yeah. like Peanut Butter and Jam? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> put it in a session? You're never going to leave that session. Yeah. The actor <laughs> Asif Manvi has told me during interviews, like two things he'd always, his loves of his life, you know, aside from human beings, uh, acting, and peanut butter, and peanut butter has always stood been true. You know, I love it. I love always it. been true to him. Um, your folks, uh, oh, your dad was a math teacher. Your mom worked at an accounting firm. Yeah, is there growing up? Is there an expectation for what you should do as you grow older? I would say they never put a limitation or, or, or constraints around us. But growing up in South Florida, I just was gonna do what I saw because I didn't have any other real idea. I mean, I knew that I liked to sing, you know, but it wasn't until I had a teacher whose name is Birgit Fiervante um, tell me 
that, you know what, you have something special. And I remember she was crying and she says it, said it. And I, I really was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And, and she helped me understand what I had and, and helped me to audition for the university of Miami music program. And that's when I realized, Oh, I actually do. So if it wasn't for her, if it wasn't for Birgit, and I shout her name out all the time, then I we wouldn't be talking right now. What did she? What was she a teacher of? And how old were you? What year was, in high school were you? I believe I was sixteen, and she was a music teacher there. We they did a a, a musical called The Music Man, mm-hmm. and I played Harold Hill because I just thought it was fun. And as I sang some of the songs, I remember her being like, "What is going on here?" And then she started giving me free lessons teachers teachers bud worth their weight in gold and they open up windows and sometimes they know it sometimes they don't even don't know it and they go down they they sacrifice and they for just students she sacrificed so much for me and uh she's really the only voice teacher that i've had even when i did carousel on broadway um i i (laughs) got her up to new york and i was like let's just keep this thing going um so yeah um that's uh that was how I didn't become didn't work at an accounting firm or become a math teacher. We should all be so blessed to have teachers like that who kind of you know don't force us to do something but kind of open up a window that we maybe didn't even realize was there. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, your parents are immigrants from Jamaica, correct? Yes. Who initially you're you're in Winnipeg for a couple of years, which. Yeah. Uh, I guess explains everything. The move to South Florida, no, no disrespect to Winnipeg, but it's a tad chilly up there. They they were like, I mean, Jamaicans going up to Canada, you know, to go to university and start their lives. But they were like, no, we got to get back to this sunshine. So we moved back. So, to- but, but my question is, is there growing up for you and your brother, is there a pressure on you as the son of immigrants? Like, mm-hmm. hey, we came here. We we dislocated our lives, perhaps. And is there a pressure on you to succeed in anything? And if so, is that spoken or unspoken? That's a great freaking question, bud. And I was just thinking about this the other day. There was never anything spoken, but there was only what we saw. And we saw them bust their behinds open to, to give us the life that we had. You know, we didn't grow up with a lot of money. Um, we were, certainly weren't poor, but I saw my dad, you know, drop us off at school and at early in the mornings and he would leave and he'd be stressed out. And I saw my mom work at the same job for 30 years. She just retired a, a year and a half ago, 35 years. And so that work ethic, um, um, that idea that you only have one chance at this or you can't mess this up was an unspoken one, but it's something that I felt. And I don't know if they'd be happy to hear that, but it is what it is. I mean, that's, that's what I, you know, so, so that's what I felt. And so when I got to the University of Miami and eventually graduated and came to New York, I had that mentality that it, it wasn't like a fearful thing, but it was like, this is your opportunity. You must seize it. And so I worked as hard as I can. I, I, I could, especially in my, you know, early my, my 20s here in New York, just staying up late nights, waking up early mornings, trying to learn the craft of, of music and acting and dance. I mean, I was obsessed with it, bud. And, and my parents didn't quite understand, although they knew I loved it, but it started to become apparent after I left at the University of Miami that I was separating myself from my, my peers. And I come up to New York and I realize, oh, 
wow, I, my work ethic is different. Uh, and that's due to that unspoken thing about my parents being, being immigrants and, uh, and other things, you know, encouraging me to, you know, just b- think limitless thoughts and right. work as hard as I could. But yeah. Once you got to university of Miami and that program, and I know you were honored by them back in 2017, uh, are you full in right from the get go or is there any moment of, can I, can I make it here? I was all in. I called my mom a week after I was there in that program and I told her I, I can do this until un, until I'm I, I can do this forever. <clears throat> it was so much fun and it came naturally. Um, I certainly wasn't good at music theory or anything like that. I failed <laughs> a couple of times and I had to stay after, you know, a couple of semesters to finish that. Um, but my teachers saw and my and they explained to my parents that he has the tools, uh, the building blocks for someone that's going to be successful in this. Not just the talent, but the 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 wherewithal to work really hard at it. So I knew that I could do this. Um, and um, fortunately, I had people like Michael McElroy, who's a, a great Broadway actor and, and multi instrumentalist, come down to the University of Miami and show me what it meant to to build a life in the theater. So I saw it. I saw what it meant to be a leading man. And that's what gave me the kind of laid out the carpet to say, this is possible. How do you mean? You mean in terms of what you need to do professionally in terms of auditioning or being on stage or the life, the whole life away from the stage, which is a life that most of us don't know. We get a phone call. Hey, you've been hired. You got to go to Chicago for six months. You know, that kind of thing. I would say, bud, Michael McElroy um, showed me all of those things. He came down to direct a production of a musical called Violet that we did at the University of Miami. And he he played the lead role of it off Broadway. And so he came down to direct uh, me in this, you know, school production. So in that process, I got to see, you know, when we were not on stage, him going to the gym. I got to see the way that he warmed up. I got to see the way that he um, uh, talked about his life and the things that sustain him outside of just the craft, you know, he talked about things like, like prayer and spirituality and, and um, resilience. And those are the things that I really grabbed onto um, that are not things that you, that people see on stage, but they're the things that sustain you as an artist. And so, uh, you know, especially as a black man, seeing him, I had never seen that before. I, I, heard all these albums, these musical theater albums of people, but I'd never met someone who looked like me, you know, and at that point in my career, at that point in my education. And so him coming down and investing so much in me as a director and outside of the stage, that's when I learned, oh, this is what it takes. Hmm. The type of work ethic, this is the type of, this is how you take care of yourself vocally. You know, you're drinking your water, you're getting your rest, you're all these things. He helped me put those together. Generations of people in all different fields have come to New York to try to realize their professional dreams. As you are, is it, first of all, is it direct straight from the University of Miami coming up to New York? And if so, uh, is there 100% excitement about the possibility about doing this? Or is there any trepidation? All right, college was great, but... Now I'm going to I'm going to New York. You know, I, yes, 
the fall, I graduated in the spring of 2006. The fall, I moved up to New York um, with $1,500 into my name. And, you know, the rent that I was going to pay was about $500 a a month. So I knew I had like three months. Remember remember where your first, first apartment was? Yep. Right in Washington Heights. I'm telling you, you, you can't see the span of my arms right now, but I could touch the wall. <laughs> like it was just room enough for my bed. So what you're saying, if I hear you correctly, palatial is the word that comes to mind. Absolutely. Just yeah. uh, it was huge paradise of the mansion, <laughs> basement apartment, lots of roaches. And I really mean that. And but it was the dream. And to answer your question, no, I wasn't scared. I, I, I don't know why exactly I wasn't scared, but I think I was so focused on the the possibility. Um, and I and I knew that I was going to work as hard as that I could. And that doesn't guarantee a success. But I, I felt, you know, I, I, one thing that I did know is that whether I succeeded or failed, like my, my parents loved me. And I believe that, you know, God has a place, you want to call the universe, I believe God has a place for you, whether that's on Broadway or in a regional stage. I was going to find my place. And at this moment of graduating, moving up to New York, this was my, my, the, my place. So I was going to go as much as I can for it and let the chips fall where they may. So you're living in Washington Heights and then you're in the show in the Heights. Yep. This one. Right and you're still here. living in Washington Heights at that point? It was surreal. But because that's like, you know, oh, I'm in Oklahoma. I'm going to live in Oklahoma. (laughs) That's so that's that really I mean, aside from the fact that it's a terrific show and what it all led to, uh, that's, uh, you know, I'm I'm imagining you looking around at other people during rehearsal like, oh, you're in here. Do you live in Washington? Because I live in Washington Heights, my friends. You know, you think about like preparing for a role like, you know, if you want to be it was Lin-Manuel Miranda's first piece about Washington Heights and I'm in the heart of it. So in rehearsal, we're talking about it. I go home, I hear the music playing. I hear the salsa, the merengue. I'm eating the tostones. I'm eating that, you know, I'm there in that world. And um, it was, it was, it was incredible, especially because I came from Miami where I saw a lot of that culture, Dominican, Puerto Rican um, and Jamaican. So uh, it was nice to be fully immersed in the entire Heights world. Now, In the Heights got a lot of attention, rightfully so, and Lin-Manuel starts to get a lot of attention. But it's we know what it's leading to eventually, this cultural phenomenon, which we'll get to in a sec. But is there some sense, as you're doing this show, and you're only in New York for a couple of years now, and you got a show, and you got a good show, and you're mm-hmm. a major part of that. But seeing Lin-Manuel is her sense of, this guy is something. We, we, we got something here. You know, I remember the first read through of In the Heights when we were doing it off Broadway. And it was him, Lynn singing everything. Alex Lackamore, his music director extraordinaire at the piano. And we're sitting around, you know, some of this making, of us have never even made our Broadway debuts or this is our first show. And by the end of it, we were holding each other, sobbing, mm-hmm. sobbing because we felt seen and understood, that's for me, but uh, we knew we were in the presence of greatness. And for it to be our first experience in a show and see this person who hasn't even, we knew that he was a genius. 
And then there's that gratitude that comes over. You're like, wow, I get to be here telling this story with this guy. But yeah, everybody knew, bud. And the great thing is, I, I you know, we've stayed close throughout the years and it, he hasn't changed. He hasn't mm-hmm. changed. Just this goofy, nerdy, genius, smart guy who knows and can freestyle at the drop of a dime. And, you know, he just happened to create this show here. Um, but we all knew. So your career is, is on the rise, Tony nominations, Scottsboro Boys, and you're doing great. Do you recall a, a first time when you started to hear word about this next Lin-Manuel Miranda show? Yeah, yeah. I believe it was a 2014, 15 uh, no, 2014, um, when he actually asked me to do one of the workshops for it. And at that time, the only one act was done <clears throat> and a couple other songs from the second act. We did a presentation of it at a place called uh, Powerhouse Film up at Vassar, New York. 30 people in the room, bud. And after that was done, I called my mom and I said, Mom, this show is going to win the Tony Award, the Grammy Award, and it's going to win the Pulitzer Prize. That was a moment because, you, you, again, you knew you were in the presence of something otherworldly. And I remember the director, Tommy Kale, telling me to do this workshop because he was like, bro, you thought In the Heights was something? That was, that was the warm-up. That was the warm-up. You got to be. So, and it, and it happened. It, all of it happened. And fortunately, I didn't go on with it to Broadway. But, you know, in this business, you just have to be patient and, you know, you never know. Was how that to... painful? You know. Um, and it wasn't it, like you were lacking for work. You were, you know, working. Yeah. Thankfully, I was working. But, you know, yeah, I, I wanted to be involved in that for sure. And and it was a little bit painful, although I understood that how things work. Uh, you know, even at that time, I understood the business just goes different ways. And my relationship with Lynn Manuel and, and that team never changed. But then in 2016, you know, I was doing a show called Shuffle Along. Like, it's nice you can kind of follow along here. Uh, Shuffle Along. Um, <laughs> For people who and, are listening to the podcast, we were looking at uh, show posters behind uh, uh, yeah. behind Joshua. There's Go ahead. Hand. So you're in sh- Shuffle Along, yeah. And it, that show closed. And Tommy Kale was like, hey, this first, this first, we're going to open a Chicago company. Um, and then we're going to go on a, uh, the first national tour. Would you like to join us for both? as Aaron Burr. And of course, that was the moment. That was a really big moment. I got to do that show, which is to this day, my favorite show that I've ever seen or been a part of. Um, Leslie Odom Jr. had won the Tony for that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, from the 12 minutes that I know you, you seem like a confident guy going into, that's not, that role is, as the old expression goes, not exactly chop liver, you know, that's a role. <laughs> And he had been great with it. Uh, is there a moment of, boy, they saw this guy do it, and do I have the goods? Um, I would say I really believed that I had the goods to, to, to do it. The, the thing, I mean, Leslie's a good friend, um, and I had to stop listening to him because mm. I was I'm such a fan of his. I mean, we've done a, sh- a show together as well, but... I, I was such a fan of the soundtrack that I was like, oh, I, I can't be influenced by him anymore because if I do, then I it won't be an authentic performance. But thank God for the brilliance that he brought to that and the the, the structure of what this role of Aaron Burr is. Um, 
but there have been moments, you know, when, when, when things just don't go your way, like not getting Hamilton or even after in the Heights to backtrack for a second, you know, I, I, that show had just won the Tony award and, and I was in the ensemble and I got an opportunity to do a, a principal role, Godspell on Broadway. And that was 2008. Everything crashed and funding went away. And so I found myself, I left a Tony Award winning show, tried to jump to get a principal role. And I'm like in between this valley of something I can't get back onto. And, and then this thing isn't happening. So I was, I think I was 24 year, four years old and that hurt so it hurt so much. I'm so grateful that I felt that at an early age because you get the reality of the business. But what I also learned is that you have to have something that sustains you outside of a contract, outside of an audience, outside of a role. What is that? For me, I realized that was my spiritual life. The understanding that there is something that is for my benefit that it is going to help me find a place no matter what, no matter the valley, no matter the mountaintop. And I'm glad to have experienced that hurt so early in my career because, you know, sometimes you go six months or a year without with hearing so many no's, you know, and, you know, it, it kind of helped me get a really great perspective on not to take the mountaintops so seriously or the valleys because you'll find your way. I only have about a thousand questions about some of your other shows, including, of course, Beauty and the Beast, which is, rumor has it, a rather popular uh, entity. And uh, I saw Into the Woods, which was just spectacular. And the notion of singing Sondheim. Uh, well, let's put it this way. Before, we, as we start to wrap up, we've got a few minutes left. Can you give me one sentence that those of us who are not in the field don't get it about what it's like to perform Sondheim? It's the most challenging uh, music that you'll ever sing. Um, and if you are up for the challenge every night, you'll find new things about yourself and your humanity that you didn't know the night before. That's mm. really what it is. Uh, Two more things before we finish. And I go back to watching the video of you of fake soul singing once again, 10 more times. Uh, it sounds crazy because you have a, a wonderful career, a flourishing career, and you're terrific on stage. Was there ever a plan B? Was there ever a notion of, geez, if this doesn't work out, I could do this? No, there, there, there never was. Um, and I don't even know how I, it sounds crazy, but it's not something I ever thought about. Now, yeah. It actually is completely uncrazy. A lot of people I've interviewed in the arts say the exact same thing. Stephen Van Zant, the musician, the rock and roll musician says, if growing up in the Jersey Shore as a rock and roll musician, you were unpopular in the 60s. If you had any other option, you would have done it. But you know, you find the passion and you go with it. Those early years that we discussed growing up, um, a child of immigrants, finding the passion with your brother in that greatly named band, and then the word from the teacher and then the University of Miami, can you tangibly point to how those years affect the work that you are doing now? I think those years, those early years of um, feeling like I had um, 
I only had one option, you know, and help me to create a lot more uh, specifically, authentically, and and brave, bravely create the work that I'm creating now. Um, I like I, I didn't have many options, you know, growing up, and so once I found the thing that I developed with my brother in peanut butter and jam session, and in at the University of Miami with the belief. Of, of, a, of a teacher, of, of an angel of someone that helped me find my path and my parents saying, I don't know what this is, but go as far as you can. It helped me just be very intentional and very focused when I got into New York in this crazy business where you can just, there's a million ways you can go and get distracted. It helped me to really focus and, and help me to just create often and with intent, as much intention and purpose as, I, as you can. If we're lucky in life, we all have parents and an angel like that. Wow. Yeah, you're right. I got really, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm grateful for him. Joshua Henry. He's just released a new single called Can't Nobody Tell Us Nothing from a forthcoming album set for release this spring. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. Thanks, as always, to editor Lou Pellegrino. We have a lot of exciting episodes coming up, featuring interviews with chef and writer Gabrielle Hamilton, business journalist and personal finance advocate Gene Chatsky, writer Jane Green, baseball broadcaster Susan Waldman, and the wonderful actor and storyteller par excellence Richard Kind. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.